This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined by a special guest, Dr. Gary Burge, author of Interpreting the Gospel of John and one of the foremost authorities on John. He was a professor at Wheaton College for 25 years and now serves as a New Testament scholar at Calvin Theological Seminary. Dr. Burge, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. It's really great to be with you guys. I, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, and if you want to add anything uh, to the introduction, talk about you know your history, your journey, sure. um, whatever you want to add to, to what I said. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, well, I have had a very full career uh, in New Testament studies. Uh, it began at uh, Fuller Seminary, where I had the privilege of studying under some really amazing New Testament scholars who encouraged me to do a PhD in the United Kingdom. That's what I did. I worked with I. Howard Marshall and uh, and uh, was examined by James Dunn. And um, so, uh, but my work was in the uh, theology of the Gospel of John, one very narrow aspect of it, the Christology and the um, pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. And uh, yeah, so that interest has stayed with me and it uh, carried me into my career, really. I taught uh, at a couple of colleges in Chicago. One was North Park University in the city, and then I was at Wheaton College for 25 years. Uh, Both of those were just great experiences. Um, Now coming into Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, it's a very different venue. Um, You know, it's funny, uh, when you're with undergraduates, juniors and seniors who are really bright and curious, uh, they're they're really wanting to spend a lot of time with speculative theology and ideas and chasing down rabbit holes, that kind of thing. But, you know, at a seminary, folks are very pragmatic. They say to themselves, look, I'm going to be bringing this word to people. Um, How am I going to preach John 3? Just don't give me theories about rebirth. I want to know about. So it's a very different community. Um, they're they're older. So uh, I don't have conversations anymore that I sort of miss about whether or not Christians should drink or have premarital sex. Um, <laughs> half <laughs> yeah. of, half, most of my students are married. So that's not it. Anyway, they have kids, you know, our average age in seminary now is about 30, 32. And uh, I really find it fun. It's refreshing. They're asking different life questions. And um, I don't know. I just really enjoy the environment. Man, the names in that story. I was just, as a Bible nerd, totally enjoying that. Examined by James Dunn, studying yeah. under, man, that's Howard that's Marshall. awesome. I love that. That yeah. is so great. Yeah, um, that was a privilege. Yeah, that, that is an incredible little fun intro to your story. I bumped into Dr. Burge's name. Um, obviously GTI tours is who we kind of arrange all of our tours with and they have a podcast and, uh, I believe I've, I've heard your voice on there a couple times now. And I remember the first time, uh, you talked with Rich and Rich said you were one of the foremost, uh, experts in, uh, on the gospel of John. And I immediately was like, oh goodness, John is one of those gospels. Everybody wants to have questions. Like it's probably the most in my, at least in my experience, I've had more questions about the Gospel of John yep. than the than the Synoptics, yep. and I I don't have a deep well of resources like I do on the Synoptics. So I immediately my ears perked up. I started, mm-hmm. I grabbed. Uh, I knew we were going to be having a podcast series on the Gospel of John, verse by verse. Grabbed uh, your book, interpreting the Gospel of John, and just really uh, thoroughly enjoyed that a ton. And so it's been great to get to know you from afar, and now to get to. Talking the podcast, I super appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Marty. Let's uh, 
let's correct Rich right out at the beginning here, right? That's a whole lot of gravy for a pretty small turkey. (laughs) (laughs) I do love that. (laughs) So, you know. um, Well, and I even stole Rich's phrase for my introduction. I was like, oh, yeah, foremost. That sounds good. Well, for me, I mean, I'm a student of the Gospel of John. I mean, I, you know, you look at somebody and they've written maybe two or three books on something and you think, wow, that means they're interested. They're curious. Hopefully they're still growing. Sure. So yeah. uh, there I can list for you people who are really foremost in the Gospel of John. I'm, sure. just, I'm just running to keep up. Well, it's it's been, your stuff is super accessible, and that's what I, I appreciated. Um, yeah. I enjoy all kinds of scholarship, but I really enjoy finding somebody that has the expertise and can still make it uh, easy, and then easy for me to pass on to somebody who's even behind me. And that right. transition sure. is really is really great. So yeah. Um, a follow-up question to get us started here. Is the Gospel of John your great love? Is it just an area that you're well-known for? Did you stumble into it? What draws you to, A, the Gospel of John, but just your work in general, and does your heart beat out you know, beyond that? Right. Great question. Um, uh, throughout, frankly, throughout the history of the Church, the Gospel of John has been the Gospel that uh, everyone has loved. Um, you know, uh, I know you love the Synoptic Gospels, Marty, but um, I think I've got you on this one. <laughs> so, I mean, you stand in front of an audience at the church and you say, what are your favorite quotes from the Gospels, from Jesus? Mm. And I'll tell you, 95% of them will be right out of the Gospel of John. So, throughout the history of the church, the people have felt that inside of the Gospel of John, there's something profound here, but there's something accessible here. Um, and people have been able to identify with. So when there have been, oh, I don't know, uh, big Colosseum revivals and that kind of thing, people will often print the Gospel of John all by itself and just hand it out. So for me, um, I wish I could have a really glamorous story, such as, you know, uh, I became a Christian somehow and uh, through the Gospel of John. No, not exactly. What happened was I ended up in Scotland working with Howard Marshall and um, James Dunn had just published a book on the Holy Spirit uh, in uh, the Gospels, uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, actually. And so um, uh, we looked at that, and then it, it, it dawned on me that he actually didn't do anything with the fourth Gospel. And then I asked Howard, well, this sounds like a fruitful thing, um, that we could actually do something similar to his treatment with the fourth Gospel. And so he, Howard actually gave me Howard Marshall I'm talking about. I, Howard Marshall. So Howard gave me about six months to basically investigate that possibility. And I came back and said, yeah, this is a green light. I think this will actually Mm. do it. And so, you know, um, that was really my first dance with the Gospel of John. And um, it has continued ever since. Um, In fact, my own studies have gone in two directions. One is to the Holy Spirit, which was the springboard in the Gospel of John. But it really is, I've just enjoyed understanding the intricacies of the Gospel of John. Um, John is very artfully written. It is a fine piece of ancient literature, really fine. And most average readers don't understand how intricately it's built and when I begin to show this to them in class, suddenly uh, all the lights go on. Um, I wrote, I've written, a, so my dissertation, it got published by Erdman's uh, on uh, the anointed community, it's called. It's a technical volume. Um, but so I've written a full scale, large commentary on the Gospel of John and on the letters of John and the book that you have in your hands. 
Um, and what I find again and again, especially with pastors, they'll say to me, oh my gosh, in this your commentary, especially, um, you just show the logic of how these chapters all link together hmm. and how John is a master. He really is a master. And so for me, I increasingly in class, I do our study in class inductively because I want students to make their own discoveries. Yes. Um, I've moved away from the monologue. It's uh, And I just go in and say, what did you guys see? <laughs> and it's really fun to watch their lights go on. Yep. And I'll have to say, my lights still go on. Yeah, I find things all the time, especially if I'm in the Greek text. I find things all the time that I think, wow, that is very, very cool insight. That's really encouraging to hear uh, somebody that is that deep into the work and still, that's one of the things I love. Uh, yep. I mean, I'm having a text message this morning with one of my fellow staff members and, and one of our students and and the things that they're pulling out of, of John. I, I just, I love that the lights still go on and I yep. love to hear somebody in your seat yeah. Still say that the lights go on and that. Right. That's good. That makes me excited that yeah. it's just an endless, bottomless pool of, of wisdom right. and resources. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great uh, indie. Do you know that uh, John draws interest in India? <laughs> go figure. <laughs> so there's a lot of published material, doctoral material, actually, from Indian scholars. Huh. Anyway, but they have commentaries. I, I don't know what it is about John. A little bit more mystic, possibly. It's hard to say. But um, what is they have a saying there that, you know, John is um, a book in which an elephant can swim and a child can play. Uh, and I think that's yeah. about the accessibility and the profundity yes. of the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, your your life is obviously um, a living example of how deep you can go with the book of John. Um, but I just love, uh, I, I'm, I'm struck by your desire to make the academic world surrounding John more accessible, like mm -hmm. just opening up uh, the table of contents to interpreting the gospel of John. You have um, in chapter five, you have uh, two sections, if you know Greek and if you don't know Greek. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and immediately I was just like, oh, okay, I don't know Greek, but there's a way forward for me. Yep. And even, yeah. you know, yeah. on the GTI podcast, you, you uh, mentioned uh, the pool of Beit Zatha. Mm -hmm. And, and then you, you thought like, oh, this is not what people commonly call it. So you, you stop to explain your pronunciation that it's right. Bethesda or Bethsaida. I mean, there's uh you know, question mm -hmm. there anyway, but, um, right. and, and even, even your discussion of themes, you're like, okay, you can see these themes in the Greek text, but many of these themes can be realized with a good English translation. Right. So it just, yeah. you know, you, you give people a way forward and, mm -hmm. and hopefully, you know, they get to that deeper point, but, um, yeah. Talk to me about like, how, how do you, how do you keep yourself grounded in the, in the world where people are who don't know anything about it? And, you know, and you just seem to have this passion to get people into John one way or another. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, for me, what is life giving to me is having to prepare for an audience. Um, and then being very aware that I am not my own audience and the success of my preparation is determined by if my audience gets it, if the lights go on for them. And so I am very audience aware when I'm teaching. I want to make sure that the student who is the weakest in my class is still with me. If I'm speaking to a large church audience, um, I want to make sure that I can carry that audience along with me. 
Um, probably my most thorough experience with this is uh, when I was at Wheaton College, um, I taught at a, a large church in Chicago called Willow Creek. Mm-hmm. And uh, I once a month, I did their Wednesday service. Um, and uh, it was about 1,200 people, you know, on scale. That's, you know, that's Willow for you. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, we went through the Gospel of John uh, a number of years ago. And I had the challenge of basically putting the Gospel of John on slides with PowerPoint and effective messages for an audience which is very contemporary. Mm-hmm. It was really a challenge. But I found that for myself, um, the hard work was not the exegesis of the text, to be honest with you, because I, I knew how to do that. I've done it for a long time. The hard work was standing back from the text and asking, what is mm. the hook? What is the thing here that is going to get my audience's attention that seems to be timeless and universal? Right. And when I figured that out, and I did that by thinking, by walking around the house, by <laughs> praying, I mean, how? what is the main thing here? And boy, when that, when that dime drops, suddenly you're like, oh, this will work. And for me, that was exhilarating because I could tell when my audience was with me and... Um, Yes, I use humor. And so therefore, when they're with me and they're laughing and they're kind of got it, I I just love that feeling because we are all going down this river in a raft together. And I tell them it's whitewater and they say, good, bring it on. And so (laughs) (laughs) and that's fun. It really is fun. Rafting on a lake is not fun. Rafting on whitewater is fun. I try to make it whitewater. That's great. Well, the work you put into that definitely shows, and and I certainly appreciate it. So, th- so thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Brent. Yeah, the 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 craft aspect of that that you you still see what you do with with this uh, right. element of craft to it. I I do love that. Yeah. All right, I got a new question, and I'm probably just impatient. I probably should have put this question later in the conversation, That's but right. I just this is one of my this is one question I have just been wanting to ask you. Um, there are so many when I study the Gospel of John from my seat as a as a reader, right. um, as a student, I feel like there are so many dichotomies that are posed about interpreting John. A um, couple examples would be like, is this about Yohonian design or an early church? Did John actually write it, or is there there's some early church discipleship school of John that's writing these letters? Is it Hellenistic influence gospel? Or is there a Jewish intentionality behind it? Like there right. are these mm-hmm. di- dichotomies and these these bifurcated conversations. And I I have always hated whenever you have two option posed. <laughs> yep. There's this there's, there's this that. voice yeah. that's always like, can it be both? And yeah. and I'm like, yes, but engage the exercise for a moment. Like, yes, it could right. be both. But but so now I'm going to do that one thing that I hate, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask, is this is there really academically a need for these to be either or, or is there a possibility that when you're looking at John's gospel, there is a Johannian design to it, and there is still an early church construction, sure. reconstruction element. There is yeah. Hellenistic influence and simultaneously right. a Jewish intentionality behind it. Can you talk to some of those yeah, yeah. things from your chair? Uh, let's put it this way. I am from Southern California. That's where I grew up. Um I could live the rest of my life eating nothing but Mexican food. I have a lot of friends who are Uh Latino, and they speak in Spanish at home. They work in the office in English, and they are truly bicultural. Uh Now, how do I describe them? It's a really interesting problem 
because actually they're living in two worlds. They can separate those worlds effectively. Every now and then, you know, sometimes one world lapses into the other, usually with vocabulary. And so we're comfortable with that. We understand, uh, yeah, that, that's, that sounds plot. Well, I know it's true because I know I've been there. Yep. Okay, let's leave that. Um, so when it comes to Jews living in the first century, um, um, we have to allow for something similar. Um, in the past, we have talked about things which are exclusively Jewish and we have talked about things which are exclusively Greek or Roman, Hellenistic, we call it. And so, therefore, we've held these two as opposites. But probably, I'd say easily, 30, 40 years ago, most of the writing in the New Testament changed. Hmm. And so, therefore, what we have, we realize, is that there were more Jews living outside of Israel than inside mm-hmm. of Israel. Right. That dispersion is called the diaspora. And in those areas, um, Jews were just like my friend in San Diego, um, very much living in two cultures. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they would understand all of the code language in Greek that would be known commonly in Greek religion, and yet they know the Old Testament extremely well. In some cases, their Greek is better than their Hebrew. Mm -hmm. We even know when we go back to Israel, it's the very same thing. In the most exclusive hangout in Israel, Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from, we even noticed in the scrolls, they are actually using images, vocabulary that come out of the Greek world. Right. Dualism. They like dualistic language. So what that means is, is that we have to be able to talk about people who are bicultural. I think Paul, for instance, is bicultural. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's home, his mom calls him Saul. When he's in Ephesus, they all call sure. him Paul. Uh-huh. So he's bicultural. So when it comes to the Gospel of John, um, there was a day— when scholarship said, this is an entirely Greek gospel, though Rudolf Bultmann would be your best example, Ernst Kaseman, a Greek gospel that um, basically has taken a Jewish story, baptized it in Hellenistic religion, and falsified the story of Jesus. Okay? Mm, yep. But Johannine studies has actually evolved radically in the last 20 years, I'd say, 25, 20 to 25 years in which there is what we call a new look on John, in which we have reclaimed the Jewishness of this gospel. So, therefore, now we actually recognize it's universal today Mm. to say, well, the organizing cultural references inside of John actually are Jewish, and um, the Hellenistic stuff is more on the fringe But we do know that both of these are working together simultaneously. You can't read the prologue, the first 18 verses of John, and not recognize you've got something going on here with the Greek and Greek thought. Um, But on the other hand, you can't read John 6, the feeding of the 5,000, and not recognize that this is a commentary on the feeding miracles of uh, the feeding, miraculous feeding stories in the wilderness. So anyway, Jewish, Hellenistic, So the running hypothesis today is that the community of people who first read John, and maybe where John himself lived, um, is a community of Jews who actually do speak Greek. Mm -hmm. And and therefore, they're living in sort of this dual culture environment. So, you know, Marty, I don't think it's a cop-out. I think it's just it recognizes a reality that we all recognize in other places— but we think that's the case here. Yeah, absolutely. 
I, I love hearing that. That's great. Anyway, I, I can go on about the other things. It's, it's funny with, with gospel scholarship or all New Testament scholarship or anyone you may talk to, um, there are hypotheses that emerge and um, that's okay. That's about, that's creativity. That's people thinking outside the box. And then the real question is, do they last for 20 years? <laughs> Right, because right. other scholars are going to test those things and ask whether they actually have validity. So um, the first question you asked was, "Well, okay, there is also these other theories about where John's gospel came from." And there was a theory that came about in about the 1960s and 70s um, by a couple of guys in New York, famous New Testament scholars, Martin and Brown, and. Their theory was is that the Gospel of John actually was written by a community of people. Um, therefore, what they're doing is writing stories which would be meaningful to them in their Greek world. And therefore, it is formed not really by what we call the Jesus tradition, the things that come from the historical Jesus, right. but instead have really been written and organized for their own experience. That's what it is. So therefore, uh, in chapter 9, when the blind man is healed— he is cast out of the synagogue, he's excommunicated, and the Johannine Christians are also experiencing this, right. hence they write the story to meet their own needs. Anyway, so what that has done is then move the conversation to say, so John is a community production that actually um, is born out of a community's experience, and it comes from their imagination, Okay, so that was a theory that was very, very active, probably in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and in some cases, you'll see bits and pieces of it today. But nowadays, it's just not so much in vogue. What we recognize is that every one of the Gospels is written with an eye to its audience. So, therefore, if I preach, if you record me preaching from the Gospel of Mark— you would know that I was speaking to an American audience in the 21st century. You just know because you would just listen to how I right. adapt to my audience, right? So therefore, each of the Gospels actually is plain to its audience. That is how those pericopes, those units in the synoptics were all built. These are probably preaching units that were collected. Why were they collected? Because they meant something to somebody. Right. That's why they were collected. So likewise... When it comes to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is written for a particular audience, with an eye to that audience, so they get it. They get the story. But that doesn't mean I have to take step number two to say that the Gospel of John is disconnected from the historical right, Jesus. Right, right. And you want, to you want to distinguish those two very, very carefully, because scholarship has gone all the way to the end of the road on the first hypothesis. right. But today, there is an emerging new perspective on the fourth gospel that is widely embraced by scholars. Um, I, I'm involved. There's, there's a national uh, religion conference every year. I'll explain this for your listeners. In November, it's called the Society of Biblical Literature. Um, oh, yes. The nerdiest place you can go on earth. Yeah, 6,000 6, people with uh, who are very, you know, biblical scholars all show up in the same place. Anyway, um, it's kind of liberal, basically, high, highly critical. But we, about uh, eight or nine years ago, started a section in there um, called Jesus, John, and History. Mm. And um, 
And a guy named Paul Anderson and Tom Thatcher, they were instrumental in forming this. And we get a huge audience for this thing. And we have hosted this now for about nine or 10 years. We're done. We have published four books of all of the papers that we've presented in this thing. And the bottom line is, John is showing that he is connected to the historical Jesus and the archaeology of Jerusalem in ways no one before ever imagined. Yes. So confidence in the fourth gospel as a source for the life of Jesus is now on the increase. Okay, so let me ask you a follow-up. Let me ask you a specific yep. follow-up. And I'm going to burn. Sorry, Brent, you can have two questions in a row after this. I'm going to jump in here. <laughs> Brent's used to me interrupting him all the time. I will arbitrate. I'll arbitrate between you two. Sorry. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right, here's my specific follow-up. So let, let me get, um, yeah, let me hone in on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, home in on an idea here. Uh, what is the possibility, like in your book, Interpreting the Gospel of John, you had this wonderful and a concise way you diagrammed all these potential, uh, I think I'm saying this correctly, aporias yeah, that are discussed. Are. All right. these Aporium. like mm-hmm. these seams, these lit, and I love that description. It was right. perfect. These literary seams where it almost feels like this, this story, this scroll could have been in a different order. And then it was like rearranged. Right. What is the possibility? And maybe you're like, well, that, well, done, Marty, that's exactly what I was trying to insinuate. But <laughs> what is the possibility that John yep. writes this gospel and then the early church with their perspective, rearranges it in in light of what we were just discussing? Right. Good question, Marty. Um, This is a live question in Johannine Studies. And uh, and today, it's, um, yeah, it's discussed all the time. Uh, There's certain phenomena that we have in the Gospel of John that we recognize. It's not in the synoptics, but it's got in John. It seems as if there are scenes it seems as if there are units which almost are standalone. The, the easiest one for you to see would be the prologue. It is the hymn in the first 18 verses, which uh, is, is a lovely. It's, it's actually a song we think they sung in church. Oh, wow. So anyway, um, I've got this prologue. And then the gospel starts with, the gospel, with, with John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's where the synoptics start. So I get it. The public ministry of Jesus was John the Baptist. Somebody attached that thing at the very front. Okay, I get it. The vocabulary of that prologue is the same as the vocabulary in the first epistle of John. Yes. Okay. All right. So I got some facts on the table now. Go to the end of the Gospel of John, and I can see that chapter 20 ends with a definite conclusion. It's, you know, um, if all the books in the world, yeah, you got a conclusion after chapter 20. But then you have chapter 21 that looks like, what? It's an attachment. Is there something been added there? Okay. So we, it seems as if we've got some, uh, it's, it's a bit of a patchwork a little bit. It's like a quilt that has been stitched together because there are places where I can actually see the stitches. Okay. Um, there are places where it kind of is a rough movement from one chapter to the next. I can give you a couple examples. Um, so Jesus is in the upper room in chapter 14. And then in verse 30, he says, okay, we're finished. Let's go. The problem is Jesus keeps talking in chapter 15 and 16 and 17. And you're like, what just happened? You know? So anyway, that's an example. Um, there are places in chapters 5 and 6, for instance, where uh, you you come to the end of chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem, you go to 6, and bam, he's in Galilee. Well, wait, how did that happen? Okay? Right. All right. Yep. 
So it looks, we, ha- we think we have some evidence in here that there has been an assembly of some kind. There have been stages of composition, which is fine. If you looked at my books, my books are actually full of stages of composition. And, sure. And my editor is always cleaning up after me. So, And that so, doesn't mean that Gary didn't write them. Like, no, exactly right. Yeah. Now, John himself may be the guy who did all this. I, sure. we, we don't know. We don't right. know if it's a community later. Yep. Or, I can't tell you that. Here's another mystery we have. So the central character in this gospel is called the beloved disciple. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, this is interesting um, because actually John isn't mentioned in this gospel. So how, how do we deal with that one? So you've got a couple of choices. You can say, well, John, when he wrote the gospel, sort of prized his relationship with so much with Jesus, he let Jesus call him the beloved disciple through the whole story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you think about that, that sounds a little peculiar. <laughs> sure. The other way to view it is... Now, this takes a little reconstruction, but if you notice at the end of chapter 20, um, it actually refers to the possibility of John dying. And therefore, uh, Peter's saying, what about this guy? And if Jesus says, if he's going to remain until I come, who knows? As for you, you have to get about your business of preaching the gospel. Okay, so there's a, we, we think, this is my theory anyway, is that when the gospel of John was finished, it could be that John put the beginning on and the last chapter on, don't know. It could be that uh, somebody else put those on, finished it up, polished it up, and the community that loved him so much, he's the pastor of a church, a community. They're the ones in the final editing that wanted to call their great pastor the beloved disciple. That makes so much more sense to me. Sure. But I'm speculating, of course. So you've got, we have, we think... We think that we can actually look at the Gospel of John and say, hmm, there is a little bit of history here to this. And, um, and so I can, I can say that the Gospel of John probably had an early form of some kind. It went through some kind of an editing process. Uh, and then I've got the f- epistles of John that are setting out there later. And we have to ask, well, what's that? How does that connect with all of the rest of it? So we've got enough information here that we think speculatively that we can say we have a history of the documents. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Go and, ahead, Brent. I, I yield my I yield my time. <laughs> well, I was just gonna say the the uh the disjointedness of chapter fourteen and then picking up in the Kidron Valley in chapter eighteen was something yeah, uh, that I, I kind of accidentally stumbled on because of the way you know, we're doing this over many episodes. Right. And so I, I was just trying to like one episode, I was just like, okay, well, let's remember where we are and let's do this thing. And it's like, wait a minute, he's just now crossing the Kidron Valley without he left. Yeah. And so we kind of, yeah. we yeah. kind of, I kind of discovered that accidentally just in the process of trying to, you know, keep people in context right. of what we're talking about. But right, right. Yeah. But now, Brent, let me, let me just tell you that this is okay. So when you have an aboria, a sort of a rough edge like that, okay. It means that the gospel is working from pre-existing material. So there were, you've got some kind of a unit that has, so it's, the gospel has a prehistory of some kind. And, um, that led some very critical scholars to say, wait a minute. That means that John just didn't sit down at a desk and write this thing out as a Greek. No, it means that John actually was tapping into some kind of a literary prehistory. 
if that's the case, where is that stuff coming from? And therefore, uh, I'll name two scholars, C.H. Dodd and John Robinson, J.E.T. Robinson, both really high critical scholars, liberal scholars. They looked at that and said, no, what you have here in the Gospel of John is an early document. Robinson said it was written probably in the 50s, maybe. Um, so, so anyway, those awkward bits tell me that somebody did not varnish the whole thing, didn't mm-hmm. polish it over, right. but instead left those rough edges intact uh, because they were somehow untouchable. Mm. Right. Yep. Yeah. So would the idea be that like John 14 led into John 18 originally, and that was one piece, and then later Definitely. they added the, the intervening parts? Could be. It, and, yeah. and, and, I mean, obviously, tons of possibilities. But. Tons of possibilities. And you've got, we've got no manuscript evidence. And uh, back in the day, uh, Boltman, he's probably got the f- most famous, largest commentary on the Gospel of John in the mid-20th century. Uh, really important book. Anyway, uh, so Boltman is very famous for uh, starting a whole trend, really, that lasted about 20 years and then died, of rearranging these chapters, flipping 5 and 6, moving 14 over to 18, in order to make it have more coherence. Um, The thing is, he was looking for chronological coherence, Mm, right? right? And most of us today think that Boltman had it completely wrong. And John is not interested in chronological coherence. He's interested in thematic coherence. Yes. So if I don't have, but but also I here, I'm a flaming conservative now. (laughs) If I don't have a Greek (laughs) manuscript that shows me 14 sitting next to 18, uh, Brent, if you can't give me that, I'm going to say, (laughs) look, let's just relax on this. It just maybe you're making more sense, but when you move 14, now suddenly you have rearranged yep. the theological development of that upper room farewell discourse. Yeah. So I yep. my tendency is to say leave the text alone. <laughs> that's that's really the trend today. Uh, yeah. It's it's the way it came to us in the canon. Let's just leave it alone and uh, and and interpret it as probably the final editor or John himself. Uh, finished it. Yeah. Let's just leave it there. Uh, on, on that idea of, um, the, the Greek text and how it's constructed and stuff. Uh, you talk about the asides that John has throughout his gospel. Mm -hmm. And I feel like most of the time those are, it's just like, ah, if the parentheses are there or not, it doesn't really change that much about what's happening in the text. Um, but sometimes it does seem maybe more significant. Um, like in John seven, where Jesus is talking and he said, uh, I did one miracle. You're all amazed yet because Moses gave you circumcision parentheses, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the right. patriarchs yep. and parentheses, you circumcise the boy on the Sabbath. And I think in that case is like, is Jesus doing that parenthetical thing to, uh, to the, the crowd? Um, or, or is that John inserting that later? Like sometimes it does seem like it could be more significant, right? whether that's John. And is there anything, I don't know really anything about Greek. Um, is there anything in mm -hmm. the Greek that would actually indicate whether something is added later or, you know, is it a comment or whatever? Is it all interpretation? No, no. So, so therefore John feels that he has remarkable license to kind of coach you. 
he, well, here, here's a better one for you. Uh, go to John chapter 6, if you have your New Testament out, um, mm-hmm. and you'll see at the beginning of John six chapter 6, it's a question of, what is the name of the lake? Okay? And so, if you look at the beginning, it says, after Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, by the way, you guys, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, um, why? What's going on here? What's happening? And I think my own take on it is, um, when I am speaking, um, let me put it this way. If I am speaking to an international audience, so I'm in the Middle East a fair bit. I've spoken quite a bit in the Middle East. And as I will, I will lapse into an analogy from the United States or Western culture. Mm. And as soon as I say it, what rushes through my mind is, oh, I can't say that. And then I pause and I explain what that thing meant. Okay, so I this is the evidence that we have that John is like he, he's aware that he is recording this story about Jesus for an audience that may not get certain things. And the one you had in seven and mine here in six actually suggests we're talking about readers who don't know Judaism as well as we think. So therefore, they need just a little bit of coaching, reminding about what this story is about, okay? Yeah. We, ha- we have this in Mark as well. So Marty should recall um, that over in Mark, oh, it's over in Mark, I'm going to say chapter four or six about the washing of dishes and vessels, seven, got it. So therefore, here we have a description of the Pharisees who are all concerned about the washing of vessels before meals, washing of hands, that kind of thing. And there's a huge parenthetical remark right there in seven of Mark. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So every, every gospel writer feels free that if their audience isn't going to get it, go ahead and explain it. And personally, I'm okay with saying, all right, John's voice is coaching me here, and it's fine. Now, let me hear, uh, Brent, here's a really a tougher one for you, okay? This is really, this is the granddaddy of all tough ones. Do I really want to, <laughs> do I really want to give this to you, or do I want to just sort of, <laughs> if you don't know it, I'm going to ignore it. But it's in John chapter 3, and it's the football verse for God so loved the world that yep. he gave his only son, that whoever mm-hmm. believes in him, right, shows up at every Super Bowl. Okay, the question is, do, where do I end the quotation marks? Right. Jesus yes. is speaking up until chapter 15, verse 15 in chapter 3. I know that for sure, okay? But then in 16 through 21, do I keep that in quotes? If you have the red letter edition, is that? go in red letter? Or is this John giving me his own explanation for what the previous paragraphs meant? Mm -hmm. So this is a really hotly disputed subject. People who tend to be more conservative are nervous about saying this is John helping you here. Um, People who tend to be more critical tend to say, oh, this is just John inserting his own theology here. So the question is, does John feel he has the license to step into the text? And I think he does. He feels he does. And frankly, I think he was a lot closer to Jesus than me. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Okay. So I'm saying, bring it on, John. (laughs) Yeah. So I've got the prologue at the beginning. I've got other insertions in 21. So I'm like, okay, all right, that's going to be okay with me. 
I just have to rearrange in my head how I understand these manuscripts to have been written. And we did talk about that, you know, where the quotation marks go in chapter three when we went over that. And I think our, our ultimate conclusion was, if we actually believe that the Bible is inspired, does it really matter where the quotation marks are at the end of the day? Exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. In the end of the day, we do believe that God gave us this book. Right. Um, and therefore, we there's a degree of faith in this, that the canon that we hold today is a canon yes. that God has given us through history. And it is going to be the guide for my life. And I'm going to believe that it is, uh, you know, it is the infallible word of God. That's that's okay. That's a defensible position, and that's all right. Yeah. Okay. So let me let me keep going with this idea of the audience that John is speaking to. And at one point, you made the. I mean, because of these asides, yeah, you have this indication that there are there are parts of John's audience that aren't familiar with the Judaism that he's speaking out of and mm-hmm. about. And so there is a Hellenistic influence that we're right. always, I'm a big proponent of John's doing this bicultural, what you called it earlier, this bicultural. Yeah, that's right. And one of the most common questions that I get when you have those conversations about, say, Dionysius or Asclepius or some of these things in the Hellenistic world is, what are some great sources? Because I don't have them on my bibliography yet. Do you have any great resources that speak to that Greek Hellenistic influence on John's gospel that we should recommend to people? Yeah. Well, the classic source, by all means, is Boltman, because he believed that John was a Hellenistic document. Um, Zoom forward, though. You don't want to go back to Boltman. It's a a very hard read. Sure. (laughs) Um, The guy, actually, um, Ben Witherington, uh, who— is at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. Ben has got a marvelous commentary on John in which he shows Hellenistic and Jewish wisdom motifs really drive the gospel. That is yep. a source. But really, um, the the guy who owns this show today is Craig Keener. Oh, now, yeah, sure. Keener is a colleague of Ben Witherington at Asbury Seminary. And Craig, I think Craig has a photographic memory he, he's a genius, but don't let's tell anybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Keep that gravy on the side of the table. <laughs> uh, Craig, I, I know him personally. He's a lovely, he's an amazing guy. Craig, if you're listening, I really, really love you. <laughs> but, but anyway, Craig has got this capacity to give us a 4,000-page commentary on the Book of Acts, if you guys have seen this. Yes. Uh, it's a doorstop for four doors. Yeah, um, nice. He has a two-volume commentary on John's gospel, which is pure gold. And what he's done is each page, about a quarter to a third of the page, is footnotes. And what he's done is collected together um, all of these effective allusions to, say, Hellenistic life and thought and how it might affect this. But having said that, you know, Craig's interest is, he's, he's current, he's, he's with all of us on this, that the Gospel of John is mainly Jewish. So mm-hmm. his chief references are all going to be showing you how this material is Jewish through and through. Um, so, yeah, um, but Craig is probably your best backgrounds person for uh, working on the Gospel of John. Love it. There we go. We finally got answers, Brent, for all those emails asking for sources behind those ideas. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so so your book, Interpreting the Gospel of John, we 
we use this um, in our study, and we actually came back to it at the end after we went through John, and we went through your first four chapters as kind of a conclusion to our study. Uh-huh. Um, but you actually say in your book that you have your students go over the first four chapters before they get into John. Um, so, you know, we kind of flipped that around. <laughs> did we, did we make a mistake? Tell us what we did wrong. I think you, you mean the assignment where I just have them actually just stare at John and go through John and inductively work with it. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. The, the idea is this, is that when, how can I put this? When, when, when we go to church, we sit passively and listen to someone else's examination of a passage, mm-hmm. a, te- a chapter, mm-hmm. um, yep. When I read a book, you read my book, it, you're doing the very same thing, right? So actually what I want them to do, <laughs> I have a really crazy exercise. I have them get a Bible they can really mark up and ruin or better still to photocopy it. Mm. I have them photocopy the first four chapters and then they have them cut up the photocopy and then I want them to reduce the font size so it's really tiny and then put it all on one page. Mm. They got four chapters on one page in very small print. Then they take colored pens. And then what I want them to do is go through and see if they can make their own subdivisions inside of the text of the gospel. And so, because I tell them the chapter and verse divisions never existed. They don't exist. So let's see if you can impose what you think are natural chapter divisions. That's just a starting Mm. point, right? Mm. And then what I want them to do is see if they can find intertextual connections. So the best exercise is for them to compare uh, John 3 and 4. And suddenly they say, wait a minute, wait, we've got two long narratives here, one with a man, one with a woman, one with a Jew, Orthodox Jew, the other is a Samaritan, not so Orthodox. We've got somebody who would call himself righteous, the other not righteous, one Jerusalem, one's not Gerizim. I've got these two people. One comes at dark, at nighttime. One mm. comes in the middle of the day, high, high noon. Hmm, what's this about? And so I ask them, all right, now look at the text very closely, and you tell me if you think John is playing some games here. Is he actually trying to set up a literary comparison, creating a drama, so that when you walk away from those two chapters, you're going to make a judgment. I always ask him, do you think Nicodemus becomes a follower of Jesus? And do you think the woman at the well becomes a follower of Jesus? Hmm. So that's what I want them to do. And if I'm lucky, they're going to read the narratives closely and say, nope, Nicodemus is not a follower of Jesus. He's in the dark. She does become a follower of Jesus, and if I'm lucky, they will flip back to the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 43, and they'll notice the way the followers of Jesus are called and how they exemplify their discipleship. You know where you have Philip, and then you have Andrew and all that? So that little paragraph is the woman in chapter 4. Yeah. Now, most of us, we read chapter one, we go get a cup of coffee, we watch Netflix, we come back and read chapter two, chapter three. We don't see it. But I force my students to keep these stories together. And when they do, they see what we call intertextual connections. Mm. And it's exciting. It's fun. So you, you see, John wrote chapter four knowing that he had just written chapter one. Nice. Yep. He writes chapter five about the lame man at the pool, knowing he's got chapter nine on his desk. 
about the blind man in Jerusalem. Yep. And if you go back and forth, five and nine, you go, oh, wow, I am supposed to be observant here. Mm-hmm. Both of these chapters, five and nine, are the two, two main uh, uh, pur- ritual purification pools for the city of Jerusalem, one in the north, one in the south, Siloam and Bezatha. Oh, which is why he points out what they're – oh, stop it, Dr. Burge. Oh, you're <laughs> killing me here. What? <laughs> Go ahead. Marty. I've never noticed that before because they, he points out the name of the pools. Yes. And so you're supposed to – oh, that's so good. So, Marty, oh. when you're – I know you lead groups around Jerusalem a lot. So, so we've always – two great things that have happened. Okay, one in the mid-20th century with Joachim Yermius. The other one only about 12 years ago, 15 years ago. You probably know both these. But we knew there was a pool, a big pool in the north side of Jerusalem somewhere – Yep. And everybody thought the five-porched pool was fake, yep. that there's no, there isn't anything like that up there. There was a big yep. old parking lot sitting on top of it, right next to the yep. Church of St. Anne. Yep. They started the excavation, and lo and behold, they found a double pool, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, it's a great site. It's complex, um, but it's a wonderful site. Then we got down into the pool and started measuring the steps and all of the architectural features. And we said, huh, this is all Herodian down at the bottom. Okay, check that box. Then we knew that there was one at the south. These You have to have be ritually purified before you get into the temple area. So in the south, we knew there was the pool of Siloam from the Gihon Spring, way at the south. Yep. But we never had the right one. It was the Byzantine pool. We were all yep. we were messed up on that yep. one until yep. they were working on a sewer pipe down there about 15 years ago, and bang, they hit this pool. And only about a quarter of it is excavated, but that's enough. We now get it. Yep. You've been there, I'm sure, with all your groups. That's the only place we take people today. But yep. we measured the stairs, we measured all of the dimensions, we've got coins in the cracks, and we then went back up to Bezatha. And they're the same, the same architect, the same guys built both of them. Yep. So therefore, Jerusalem actually, for the pilgrim traffic coming from north and south, was ready for, everybody knew these two pools. These were the big ones, okay? Yep. So when John writes this, and a Jew who's from Jerusalem reads this, he goes, wait a minute. So Jesus is working healing miracles at these pools. And now, by the way, we know they were ritual pools for ritual purification, not just water pools yep. for drinking. Yep. Right. So five and nine are, yeah, are intentional. So for those of us who do Johannine historical studies, we say, okay, John gets the pools right. He understands ritual purification from before the destruction of Jerusalem. He's got the geography. Good grief. He knows Jerusalem before it got burned. Yep. That's huge. Yep. That's really Absolutely. huge. <laughs> That's a big deal. All right. So thinking about these students that you teach. Yep. Um, is there, and I, and I know you probably don't actually do this, but sometimes as a teacher, uh, I know I myself sometimes wish I could just like take a mantra and just give it to my students. Like, just don't ever forget this line. When you study John, is there a mm-hmm. phrase, a mantra, uh, yeah. a repeated idea that you wish your students when they're done take away or had with them as a student, right. something they just always yeah. think of every single time. What would that be? You bet. Something tattoo worthy. Yeah. Yeah. Context is king. And what I mean by that is that when you open a chapter from any of the gospels and you just read it aloud, do not assume you understand what's going on there. 
as presumptuous. It's not in your language. It's not in your century. <laughs> it's not in your culture. It is coming from another place. God was required. You can't communicate to anybody unless you use their culture. So God was necessarily limiting his revelation to the culture that received it first time. So therefore, I come in as a tourist. And so therefore, my, I tell my students, context is king. The first thing you have to do is reconstruct the context for this story. So if you do John 5, and if you don't know anything about the north side of Jerusalem, you're just clueless about ritual purification, or you don't know anything about a paralytic and what that life looked like, um, you know, you're going to get about 30% of John chapter 5. If you don't know about what it means to hold the Sabbath, break the Sabbath, accusations, you know, it's all about the Sabbath. In fact, I was going to say, there's a lot of layers to that context. There's <laughs> everything from layers. Yeah. physical layout of Jerusalem to like just cultural stigma of that condition to Sabbath laws. I mean, there's a lot of layers to context. Totally. Absolutely. Lots of layers there. Yeah. So if imagine somebody coming to this gospel, they don't know, they don't understand Sabbath, you know, and they don't really understand ritual purification or, or paralytics. Imagine you are not going to have a clue. You're, you're just going to miss it all. And you're going to probably extrapolate things from this chapter that are, that are wrong. They are. I mean, think about when I um, uh, I am, I love the uh, Tolkien's trilogy, and I mm-hmm. have not yet watched the two new ones that they've just come out with. And mm-hmm. I think to myself, you know, in 2,000 years, if somebody were actually to watch these Tolkien movies, <laughs> if they have movies, um, how much knowledge do you have to have to really understand what's going on here? Sure. How much knowledge will be lost in 2,000 years? Yeah. Probably a lot. Context is king. Yeah. And it, that's where you have to roll up your sleeves. You've got you've to buy the right books. You've got to, if you are a teacher or a pastor, you, you, you've got to dabble with the original languages. Um, that's where the gold is. That's where the gold is. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. My final question, I think, uh, because we are, we, we've been holding you for a while now, but um, That's okay, Brent. the, uh, so interpreting the gospel of John originally came out in, uh, the early nineties and then right. you released a, an updated edition in 2013 yep. because so much right. had changed. Uh, you mentioned that earlier in, in our episode. Um, is there anything in the last 10 years, um, that has changed or is developing, uh, that you would add if you were making a third edition right, right now. Right. Yeah. I think if I, th- by the way, this book is actually designed for advanced college students and seminarians. Um, it, so it really, it's used a lot in classes where they teach the gospel of John. And it's kind of like the prelude before you get into the gospel of John. Yeah. So if I were to do edition three and I, I might, um, it would be what I was talking about just a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the historicity of the Gospel of John and his relationship to what we call pre-destruction Jerusalem. That means the Roman destruction in AD 70. What was the world before that? Everything changed after AD 70. So do we have real historical roots in the Gospel of John? And that section from SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, that is where we are doing all of this. And now we've got publications and... uh and I think I would probably just really develop that piece of it. I want readers of this book and my students to come away saying, 
Um, I love the Gospel of John, but I also respect the Gospel of John. Those are two different things. Mm. I love the Gospel of John because it inspires me and it feeds my soul. But I respect the Gospel of John as a reliable source into the life of Jesus. Mm. And yeah. th- those are those are different. You, you can you can say, "Well, I really love this thing," but I know it didn't have anything to do with the author. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> you know, art, music. You, 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 we all can live like that. No, but I want my students to come away saying, "No, this is a trustworthy gospel." Yeah. Okay, so you you have that book, and it's kind of built and designed for those advanced college students or seminarians. What what other resources could you recommend outside of that one? You would even say, "Man, the preferred place to be would be to go to this source of mine." As far as your sources that you've done personally, what other kind of John pieces do you have to? Uh, to add to people's library? Oh, this is a, yeah, it's a very, very good question. There's so much that is published on the Gospel of John. It's it's very, yeah, I, I've got one for you, which is now going into its second edition. And um, it's uh, a friend of mine who just retired from Denver Seminary. His name is Craig Blomberg, um, B-L-O-M-B-E-R-G. Uh, Craig is a magnificent New Testament scholar, and about eight or nine years ago, he wrote a book called The Historical Reliability of the Gospel of John, or the Fourth Gospel. I don't remember which. Anyway, um, Craig just told me a little while ago that he's now uh, in Cambridge, England, working on a very full revision and expansion of that book. So if if somebody wanted to be current in what's really going on in Johannine studies today on that question— Craig's volume is going to be out in about one year, and it'll be first rate, first rate. Yeah. And what about your what about your work specifically, Doctor Burge? What other works have you done on John that other people might want to know outside of interpreting the Gospel? Did you sure. say you had a commentary yeah. on John? Mm-hmm. And yeah, then... I have a commentary on John in the NIV application series. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, that's yeah. It's kind of a large one. It's about six hundred pages. Then I've got. I, they asked me also to do the letters of John in that same series, and um, and, and these have. Uh, it's just such a blessing when th- this is this is such a blessing to me. I have many pastors preach from that series, and they'll preach through John using the stuff that I did. And they will send me an email telling me, I just did my sermon on John 3. Thank you. It was magic, you know. And I thought, oh, all of it, that was all worth it. <laughs> it is so, yeah. such a blessing when those two things happen. Um, those are that and the theology of the Spirit in John and the one you're holding uh, right now are the only, I just do articles and things uh, in addition to that, um, which are in very academic journals. So I, those would be the four. I, I sort of have branched out a little bit and I'm doing other things. Um, I, there is a, a volume that if somebody is just breaking into New Testament studies, um, I co-authored with a colleague a textbook um, which is used widely in American Christian colleges. It is called The New Testament in Antiquity. And uh, that took a lot of my time. It's it's a long book. It's illustrated beautifully. We had a team of about 12 people doing maps and illustrations. Uh, college students love it. And uh, But I have learned that many people who just want to get a more academic grounding in the New Testament find it helpful. Right. That's great. Well, we have a, a full list of show notes and resources for people uh, to dive into as as listeners, as our listeners who apparently like to listen to podcasts. I would definitely say recommend um, 
the GTI Tours podcast, year two episodes there. We'll link both of those. Um, is there is there anywhere else that people can find you and get connected? Um, I do have your website, garybirch.org. I guess yep. if mm-hmm. people want to book you to speak or anything like that, uh, that's probably the best place. Sure. Yep. I do that kind of work as well. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'll look for you in Israel and uh, we'll go explore okay. some tomb together. I love that. that, that that's a date right there. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that does it for this episode. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BayamaDeceptionship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bayamaw podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Marty, I just was thinking of things that um, I'm looking forward to. In January, I'm going back to Israel with uh, about 30, 35 students. Um did you know that during COVID, they opened the tomb of Queen Helena of Adivene there? No. The tomb of the kings. You know the tomb? Yeah. No, I did not know that. Of all the things I've heard about during COVID, because there's been a ton of stuff that's happened, I have not heard that, no. It is the best Rolling Stone tomb in all of Jerusalem. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It was, it's, a, it's a burial site for this woman who came from Mesopotamia, Jewish, wanted to be buried in Jerusalem, quite wealthy. The whole area was just a monumental thing. It was so, but it's underground. So you have to go off the street there where the Rockefeller is. And, but you have to go online. Okay. Tomb of the Kings. And it's owned by the French. Okay. That property is owned by the French and they give you written permission. They don't just leave the gate open. Okay. Right. It's a deal. And I think you have to pay a dollar a person. Big okay. deal. Anyway, but when you go down inside, I used to hike through it with students years ago, and it was scary and dangerous. You needed flashlights. I was hoping you had been in it. But anyway, it's first on my list for Jerusalem going forward. Wow. Wow. You, you can stand in the center of that tomb. On The, in, the Rolling Stone is all intact. The burial wow. bench is intact. Everything's intact yeah. on side because the whole thing got buried with debris. So yeah. it's in perfect condition and you can climb through it. Anyway, wow. you can tell the whole resurrection story from inside that tomb and students will, bam, they'll get it. Wow. That's incredible. I'll have to ask you who about that when I'm there next. Yeah. 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 I've loved some of the new stuff. The dig they did at Banyas is just phenomenal. I love what they're uncovering there. That is fantastic. That's in the Hellenistic city? I don't know about that. Yeah, so right in front of the cave there at Banyas, oh, yeah. the spring at yeah. Banyas, yeah. they they had they had to they were working on that retaining wall, and so they had to do a little bit of a dig and they found a, the pre-pagan the pagan temple yeah. where they would have offered sacrifices to Pan. Yeah. But then there's like what four to six churches built on top of it. Yeah, and like they that. think that's where the like there's four church historians that talk about the statue of the woman that was healed with the issue of bleeding yeah. and it got smashed to pieces. And they think that they probably, there's a relic, there's a reliquary there in that church. And they, they think maybe they stored her, the pieces of that statue there in that church. Huh. And you remember the big rock that sits right yeah. in the middle of that cave. Yeah. Now that they know that the church is there, they they want to get the, the team there said they wanted to get some more money to do. They, they don't know if that rock, they're like, we, we wonder if this rock is here because of Peter's confession. And that that rock is not actually a part of the oh. 
just the the regular cave formation and everything. I thought that rock just maybe fell from somewhere. It was just debris. That's what I think everybody kind of assumed. But now that they Mm -hmm. know how prominent those churches were, they're they're wondering if that thing's going to be placed there. But they need to get dig down and see where what it's at. Cool. Oh, good. Oh, well, it's fun. That's that's the fun part of going back a lot to Israel. Absolutely. It's uh, everything new. It's the new stuff. Yep. All right, you guys. Hey, thanks for taking the time. I know this was a, a chunk out of your week, but I, our listeners are going to love it. We loved it. I don't even care if anybody else loves it. I, I loved it, so it was great. I kind of I kind of flubbed my intro, so let me let me re re say my intro real quick while I'm still recording. This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we are joined by special guest Dr. Gary Burge, author of Interpreting the Gospel. To, I did it again. Gospel? What am I doing? <laughs> Okay. I can say gospel, I promise.